0: Hello, it's Shahid. Yes, season five is technically over for another year, but a relatively new podcast, uh, The Creative War Room, hosted by the lovely Tobe Pickford, got in touch with us for a chat. So to help them out, we are promoting the next two episodes for them on here. The chat is with me and it revolves around career battles. I uh, hope you enjoy it. I share some early days with me at sexy school, surrounded by paedophiles. If that doesn't get you listening, (laughs) nothing will. Please do follow the Creative War Room and give them a positive rating and a review. Anyway, here you go. Hi, this is Pickford from the Health Army.
1: And this Creative War Room episode has been broken down into two parts. Um, Why? Well, Shahid, Pira and myself have had a lot to talk about. And there's so much interesting stuff, and I thought it'd be easier on you guys if I broke it down into two bits. So get your walking shoes on, start your engines, and enjoy. Hi, everybody. This is Topic from the Health Army, and this is the Creative War Room. And today is a man who's creative in every sense of the word, and is a real inspiration to me. And I'm sure you know if you've listened to him. And um, um, he'll be an inspiration to you He's the founder of the Creative Floor Awards He hosts the Creative Floor Awards podcast He's the EVP at IPG Health um, He's judged all the prestigious awards shows And been the president of the Khan's Lion Health and Wellness Which I was a part of and got to know him And But I'm sure that's not it I'm sure there's loads more um, about this person It's the nun and other Shahid. Pira, and welcome to the Creative War Room, Shahid.
0: Oh, hi. Um, I'm blushing. Hi,
1: To. <laughs> I can't see it, but... Uh...
0: <laughs> I'm brown. You wouldn't be able to see it anyway. But,
1: uh... <laughs> yeah, it's only me, this uh, white white person who's very blushy. Yeah.
0: So, mate, how are you? Um, I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, Good. Friday, bit chilled a bit tired but yeah good really good thank you for inviting me and congrats on this podcast I, i'm a i'm a big fan and uh, thank you for doing it it's great thanks
1: thanks mate really cool. well you know you were you were honestly as i said and i'm not trying to you know um it's in your pocket or anything like that but you definitely inspired me to do this and, and inspire me to sort of like um become a um hopefully
0: a podcaster you, what you're doing what you know tim Jones is doing and i think that's about it at the moment isn't it us three but
1: yeah yeah for the health health sort of health creative yeah i think so so nobody knows this i don't know some people might know so you're 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 living in london you're around london you're
0: yes in london
1: yeah that's cool and what sort of time is it at the moment it must be sort of like this is
0: how i my podcast it feels really weird yes uh i oh, well, there you <laughs> go <laughs> it's it's five to ten in the morning. What time is it? Okay. Time? Yeah, we're we're here in
1: Sydney, Australia. It is nearly seven o'clock. So I've 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 got a beer here. So just uh, just so everybody knows. Yeah, there you go. Opposite. So you've dropped the kids off. They've done this dumb- to school run and all that exactly. kind of stuff. Exactly.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah. I just want to, jump to I sort of like jump in, and There's lots, lots of questions I've got for you, but first of all, I, I really wanted to know. And when I when I met you, I instantaneously got, got on with you. We, we we sort of hit it off, and I've always wanted. Um, I sort of felt, you know, really sort of close to you. Weirdly enough, it was it was it was good. But I just thought, I wonder what I wonder what Shahid was like as a kid. And um, <laughs> I just thought to myself, was he was he a really naughty little boy or was he kind of like really quiet? And I just thought, you know, I've never I never asked you that when I saw you, but what yeah. were you like?
0: Reciprocated, I felt very close to you as well. I guess we were in a very small room in Cannes, weren't we? So we all- <laughs> Yeah, very close, yeah. Very close. What was I like? I was very, very quiet. I'm a middle child. I've got an older brother, I've got a younger sister. I was so quiet. A lot of people actually uh, like friends of the family wouldn't would even forget my my parents had a middle child. They didn't even mm. know I was there. I would appear <laughs> yeah. from nowhere. Exactly. Like even the concept of me doing a podcast or being, you know, in a past role where you're presenting a lot and all those sorts of things would have felt uh, a million, million miles away from how I was as a child. I mean, I still, I, I am an introvert for sure, No matter what people might think but yeah i was very very quiet i found i just i just drew a lot really it was like my safe space it was the place where i didn't have to listen to you know parents arguing or my brothers and sisters fighting or anything like that i had a bit of a strange background i guess well my parents were from tanzania Right. That's where they were born. And they came over to the UK in the 70s as kind of refugees, I guess, because in the East Africa, government basically gave all the sort of Asians like 30 days to leave the country. Uh, Otherwise, they'd basically go to jail and they basically stripped them of all their businesses and their houses. So there was this sort of exodus of Asians pretty much to Canada, the U.S., uh france and the uk i think they were the main countries that basically said okay you can come here so my parents found their way into the uk and london this sort of classic story that i've heard about a million times growing up and you sort of yeah. you, you don't really appreciate it until you're sort of a lot older but yeah they sort of came over like no money Dad trained as a jeweler in hatton garden which is like the jewelry quarter in East London and my mum went to college to learn how to type, be a receptionist. Uh, so yeah, me and my brother and my sister were born in, in London. I was about seven years old or so. My parents decided that they wanted to move us out of London. My, my, by this point, um, my, my dad and my mum had opened their own jewellery shop in uh, Knightsbridge. They were the first Asians actually to open wow. a coffee shop in Knightsbridge, just down the road from Harrods. So they've done pretty well for themselves considering they came to the UK with nothing. That's fantastic. Yeah, so it's a really nice little story for them and us, I guess. And we moved to the countryside, a little town called Farringdon, which is in Oxfordshire. And My parents bought like a, a little B&B, I guess, like a little hotel. And we lived in the hotel. We were running that pretty much. That was my childhood. So if I, <laughs> it was so bizarre, like because we literally lived in the hotel, our home phone was the hotel phone. So, you know, if you're at home and somebody calls you home and <laughs> you go, hi, it's like we did yeah. phone and we're like, found in hotel. How can I help you? And it was, <laughs> oh, and it was your mate on the line. Exactly. It's like, who's this? Oh, it's me. And it was really weird. So, I mean, it wasn't weird because it didn't know any different, really. So growing up, it was like from about eight till, well, yeah, till I was in my early 20s, which is in a hotel. So I was always, it was really weird. Like you're constantly working, which is really bizarre. So, you know, you come home from school, eat dinner And then you just in the background, because my parents are proper Asians, right? So their kids are actually free stuff. So you're either washing dishes or you're cleaning up or you're, you know, you're cleaning glasses or, or whatever it is. And when I got old enough to serve pints, then that's what I was doing. Um, So we were just constantly working. And, you know, even when you're sleeping, you know, sometimes you'd get like people coming in like for weddings or whatever, like at two, three in the morning, like locked out of the hotel. Cause it was a little hotel. It's not like there was like big reception that was open 24 seven and they'd just be buzzing. And so where my bedroom was, was basically the buzzer. So anytime the door opened and closed or somebody was ringing, it would buzz in my room. And then on my TV, I could just switch a channel and I'd have all the security cameras around and I'd go, oh, wow, man, I've got to go and open the door now. So then I'd have to go up at two, three in the morning and open the doors and let all these drunk people in. And So yeah, that (laughs) that was my childhood. So I I think my friends that stayed over loved it because they were all of a sudden staying in a hotel and it was like free lemonade and Coke and whatever that sort of stuff, but it was yeah. bizarre. I mean, you, it was constantly working, and it was mad. And I, it, this is a really interesting sad fact. But we were working so hard as a family. I think that we, that we, I don't even remember having one family holiday, and that was when I was seven years old. We never went on a family holiday together because we were constantly working. So that's kind of my childhood growing yeah, up.
1: Yeah. Wow. So, so, so that, that's really that's really interesting because. You know, with a hotel, it's kind of similar to, you know, agencies. You meet there's so many random people that come through the door. There's all these different different people that sort of like enter in the building. Yeah. You know, alcohol's a lot involved with agencies as well. So you got a lot of piss people, you got some really interesting people, you got some people that are really lovely and kind. You must have seen so many different styles of, of folk going
0: through there. Must have been amazing. Yeah, yeah, completely. People from all over the world. There was a big Honda factory down the road from us. Uh, So for about five or six years, our hotel was just constantly full of Japanese people. And, you know, we became like really good friends where my parents went to Japan to go to like one of their, you know, one of their guests' daughters' weddings. So yeah, it it was like um, very similar aspects to agency life, I guess, in terms of, you know, always having to be of service, I guess, to others, um, always having mm. to be positive. I mean, you know, when, when you're in a service industry, you know, the customer's always right, right? So there's no, yeah, <laughs> you've got to be done nice yes. all the time.
1: So but, so your dad wasn't like sort of Basil Fawlty or anything, was he? No, sure he was, right.
0: Well, yeah, I think we probably all were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very international, I guess. You got a lot of exposure to different um, aspects of culture. Uh, the relationship with alcohol was definitely apparent. With you know, we had locals who would come in every day. I would be behind the bar every day. If I wasn't behind the bar in when I was a little bit too young to be behind the bar, I'd basically be in the lounge and just sort because of, that our, the bar actually was our lounge. That's where we would go and watch TV. Yeah. TV it's just really weird, and we got to be really good friends with all the local drunks. Basically, yeah, it really put good. me off alcohol. Like, I, even when I could drink, I. I just didn't because I could just see the impact that it was having as I was growing up on, on, people coming in.
1: I know exactly where you. I know exactly where you are. Weirdly enough, because I, I grew up in Oxfordshire in England, so I know I know Farringdon. And um,
0: where were you again?
1: I, I, I grew up in a little little village called Stanlake, which was um, near Whitney, which was near Burford. Yes, which is you know in that little pocket yes really that weird nice. little pocket yeah. full of random random people
0: yeah
1: yeah and and i guess different from london which is like where you oh, yeah. know your parents were sort <laughs> of like came from to into an oxfordshire little sort of rural town you know there, there wasn't many i mean there wasn't many different styles of culture or anything you know particularly i mean there were there were a few p- people there were different different cultures um, and i imagine that being very different for for Farrington, or maybe it wasn't
0: i guess I didn't notice that I was of a difference because of my color and my name and my culture yeah. until I was probably about 13. So as I say, I think the hotel gave us a little bit of this um, bubble because we were, you know, we we had lots of Japanese people. We had people from all over the world coming and staying with us. So it's not like, you know, we were the only people yeah. that, would, that weren't white. But I think I noticed it when, so I was always very into art, right? My only outlet really, apart from the craziness of like pretty much being working 24-7 growing up was art. So I would go and draw and when it was too stressful and too busy, like my little safe place for 30, 40 minutes was art. And so my parents could see that that was, you know, I was never really going to be a hotelier or into catering. I was always going to be in the world Mm. of art. So they found me a school in Somerset. They don't exist anymore but at the time there were schools called grant maintained schools a bit like grammar schools they're basically state funded they're state schools but uh, they had a little bit of selection so they found a, a really good art school in somerset um, but I had to board. So this um, right. state school had boarding next to it, which is really weird because you associate boarding schools with Etern and really big, expensive private. Yeah, building. yeah. But this wasn't one of those. This was a state school, but it had boarding. Uh, it had a boarding house, basically. So in this place, I mean, it's really funny. I was, I, I didn't expect we were going to go down here, but you'll, you'll like this. So the school was called Sexies. So it's called Sexy School. S <laughs> E X E Y S. And uh, everyone's thinking now, is it co ed? <laughs> <laughs> it's co ed. Uh, to make it worst, uh, worse, worse, uh, it was on Lovers, uh, sorry, it was on Lusty Hill. So, sex oh, was on Lusty Hill. And at the bottom of Lusty Hill was Lovers Lane. That's so good. Yeah, so, yeah, looking back, it's good. So, I'm an, I'm an old sexier. So, my parents sent me to this random boarding school in Somerset, in the middle of nowhere, called Sexies. And I remember them taking me to this place. And the first person that I meet is a guy in who's I'm, um, you know, he's in my dorm, if you like. And there's like seven, six of us, I guess. And he's like, "Hi, my name's Pee Wee," and I'm like, "What the fuck." <laughs> What's going on? Like where, where where have my parents taken me? And this is when I was like 13 years old and they were like, Oh, you know, you'll you'll like it here. And I thought it was a joke. I thought I'll be out of here in two, three weeks. Like, what? Who's Pee-wee? Like, what's sexy school? Like, <laughs> what, what is going on here? I'm Pee-wee Herman. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I went there and I think I was I was the old- I mean, if you thought Farringdon or Whitney was white, I mean Usually gone to Bruton, which is where the the little village was, where my school was. I mean, literally. I mean, I was. I stood out like a, (laughs) yeah, thumb. You know, I I was like a red dot on a on a big A zero uh, white bit of paper. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was when I first really realised it because you know you don't have your family around you. You don't all your friends have basically been taken away. You've got to now connect with new people. Call them, you know, got weird names just. It's just an odd place. Somerset is a strange yeah. place. No offense to anyone yes. in Somerset. But I mean, uh, uh, yeah. you know, so they send all the paedophiles there, which I found out. Oh, <laughs> You know, oh, God. when they want to go into witness protection. Yeah,
1: right. A really weird Drink cider. Yeah, somewhere exactly. In exactly. Somerset.
0: Exactly. So I went to sexies, and that was my first realization that, wow, I'm different. But yeah, that was it. That was kind of my childhood. It was really weird. but it, Yeah. Yeah. You know, so- that's,
1: ama- that's amazing. So, so uh, what I get out of that, I mean, like from the from the from the hotel to the sexy school to standing out, you know, I just think you've you've really kind of learned to adapt, and I think that's really probably made you resilient and strong when you when you li- literally got into advertising and the advertising world. And I just want to just like zoom forward. I'm sure there's lots of bits in between. I just want to fast forward into that time when you kind of like you went into advertising and, and and why why I mean I know you were you were great at you were great at, you were into drawing you were into art and but why advertising you could have gone down so many roads I guess what 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 was it about advertising that got you
0: yeah so I have I've have shared my sort of path on a few other podcasts so if there is anyone yeah. listening to this I'll try and give a slightly different spin on it Um, and and share more things, I guess, that maybe people haven't heard. Yeah, boarding school was, it it built a huge amount of resilience. And I think one of the things that I felt was a lack of belonging, really, because, Mm. and I think that sort of follows through into my career and how I ended up in advertising was a sense of belonging. Because, you know, when you're sort of growing up 13 to 18, most people live at home, right? And that's your home, you you know, your mum and your dad, and you know your friends and you've got your unit. When you live in a boarding school, you're kind of like, you know, you're moving around different rooms, you're moving around with different people. You know, it's really not your room. It's not where you really belong. It's just a place where you go to school. Uh, and then when you go home for holidays, that your parents have basically like turned your room into something else. <laughs> so you're like... <laughs> a here. bar. Yeah, exactly. It's another <laughs> An room. extra,
1: yeah. This is sauna or
0: something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it was this sort of whole sense of belonging and... I was I was working in the bar and I was sixteen years old and it was the World Cup I think it was and it was really busy and I was cleaning all the glasses and anyway the adverts came on and Guinness Surfer the you know the ninety second version came on everyone in yeah. the pub went silent they were like oh my god everyone's watching this thing and this is what oh, it's just a long time ago right it's over twenty years old I think now so it's the first time anyone had ever seen anything so incredibly visual and black and white and it had poetry and had amazing music and everything about it was just amazing. So I saw that and then everyone saw it, everyone went silent and then, you know, the next ad came on after it was a normal kind of like crap ad and everyone went back to drinking and chatting. And I just thought bloody hell, I was like, what was that? (laughs) It's like, that's what I wanted to do. So from 16, it became, my life became very focused because I just thought, I don't know how i get into that but that's what i want to do and yeah so i from 16 i knew exactly what i needed to do i, I needed to get my art portfolio together i need to do well at my GCSEs and a levels and i needed to go to central saint martins because that was the best place in the world at the time from a design and a creative perspective and i got there And I found that the people that had done Guinness Surfer, because that was still like my shining light, that was like the best I'd still ever seen, even when I got to 18, 19. And I found the agency that had made that work. It was AMV, uh, Abbott Mead Vickers BBDO. And while I was at college, I basically hunted down the creative team who made Guinness Surfer. So Walter Campbell and Tom Carty and, and others actually, like other creatives that I'd, sort of loved their work in the dnad annuals and such and i just got them to mentor me and i got them to help me with my book and that was it yeah my first placement and first job was at amv yeah it's kind of it really
1: that's um that's amazing
0: (laughs) it was hard but yeah that's
1: amazing it just it just shows that sort of like obviously your resilience your passion you know your your i'm never going to give up um sort of attitude but you know what 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 were those people like, you know, when you sort of rocked up and said, oh, you know, I really, really love what you're doing. What were they, what were they like? Well, he's like, ah, fuck off, mate. <laughs>
0: uh, God, too many people. It's so, okay. So Walter Campbell, I mean, people should just, if anyone doesn't know who I'm going to be name dropping, please check them out. These people literally are living legends within our industry and have sort of changed the face of advertising um, in a way that probably – you know most people listening to this would, <laughs> would just only dream of doing it in their career so walter campbell really big chap um irish guy and uh in fact he came into our college and uh he just sh- he just came in showed some of his work he showed a project that he had just finished and it was really cool so oxford street right it's a big shopping uh, district in london and outside one of the department shops, every day, there was a chap who ba- he was blind. And he would go there and he would just play on uh, violin. And so Walter Campbell observed that this guy, at, you know, for four hours a day or so, blind guy, just stands outside, uh, John Lewis, and he's just playing his yeah. uh, violin. So he decides to get a camera, jumped in a cab. He set the camera up in the cab opposite the street where the guy was... Playing. Obviously the guy didn't know he was being recorded. Walter Campbell just sort of like went by and was just with like a bundle of cash, I think it was like two grand in money and just dropped it in the guy's tin. And they just filmed it. And it was just, it was absolutely unbelievable. This guy's playing the fiddle, right? And he sort of clocked that somebody's just dropped something into his tin. So he finishes the song and then he sort of reaches down into the, into the pile of money. And he can't, I mean, it's amazing. The guy just can't believe. I mean, he's, he, obviously he can tell it's money, but like the amount, and then he just starts crying. And, wow. uh, and it's about a three, four minute film. And then it just sort of ends and it just went, it had, it had something really nice, I can't remember, but it was just like, uh, it was all about love, basically. And he just shared it and we were like, wow, that's amazing. Like, well, I was like, well, what's that for? And he was like, nothing, because I just did it because I just observed something. And I just thought I'd make a difference. And that's what I did. And he goes, that's basically what you need to all need to do. So he gave us a little bit of a a pep talk. And then right at the end, he goes, all right. And there was like, you know, the whole class. And he goes, who's the best here? And I just put my hand up in a heartbeat. And and it cringes me just sort of saying that. But that was how it (laughs) was. Like, I had literally spent my entire childhood in a prison in Somerset. And I worked my nuts off to get the fuck out of there. Frankly. Yeah. And I'd made my way into London with no money and struggling day by day knowing where I needed to go. So I just put my hand up straight away and he went, right, you and me, we're going out and everyone else then started to put their hand up, going, like, no, I'm the best. And he was like, he was just like too slow. And then he took me out and he took me for a coffee and then he went, right, show me your book. I showed, he showed me, I showed him my book and then, um. <laughs> We were there for about an hour and a half and he was just giving me like the most incredible advice, the most incredible tips. And then he, he was a bit odd. He just sort of said, he goes, Shall I tell you something? And I was like, yeah, you tell me anything you want. You know, I was like hanging on every word. And he goes, I can repeat back every single word that you've said to me today. <laughs> and I was like, really? And he was like, yeah. And he said, could you do that with me? And I went, no. And he was like, exactly. He goes, I'm looking at everything in every detail. And he was like, well, that's what you need to do. That's what you need to do. You need to go where no one else will go. And he was just like, I don't know if he was just putting on a bit of an act, but it was like, yeah. it was surreal and mad and weird. So anyway, that was Walter. And then I, did, I ended up working with Tom Carty. So Tom Carty was the writer of the Guinness uh, Surfer and all the amazing Guinness work that he did and Volvo and Dunlop and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And he was, he was fucking amazing. Like just the most amazing, amazing chap and Tom Carty, right. Let's go into him a little bit. Imagine Liam Gallagher from Oasis being a creative. That is Tom Carty. Just he's, he's my height. So he's pretty short, but massively intimidating, super focused. Like I've never met anyone so focused in my life. We did our first commercial with him because he basically moved from being a writer to a, a director. And we did a, a, it's on my portfolio actually, if anyone wants to see it, it's called, uh, it's, it's got, a, I won't ruin it, but it's basically got a pole dancer in it. It's the first piece of work in my portfolio. It got, it got a d pencil and we got Tom to shoot it. Anyway, we shot with Tom and the next job that we got was for Nicorette and it was this massive, massive, Uh, Launch when they were bringing in the smoking ban in the UK. So it was like, you know, this was never gonna happen again. And this was Nicorette's, you know, big push into all the products and all the portfolio stuff. So anyway, we did this little script, client loved it. Tom loved it, Tom really wanted to do it. On the first day of the shoot, it was about a four day shoot or so, pretty big. And on the first day of the shoot, we're shooting some people and we're all in the back, we're there with the client um tom's doing his own thing and the way tom works he doesn't want anyone around him doesn't want creatives doesn't want clients everyone's got to have their own little zone and he's got his own space Mm. where no one can come into it and if you want to speak to him you've got to go through his producer so once he's done his stuff he then calls over the creatives and it's like a rhetorical question when he's dealing with creatives because you can't question tom Right. And, and it's kind of fair enough when you're working with people that are that talented, you're getting them in for a reason because you trust them. Yeah, exactly. So Tom's process is Tom does what he wants to do. The creatives say yes. And then the creatives go and sell it to the client. And then we move on. That's his process. And we would known that from the pole dancing <laughs> piece. So first shot of the day, he's done this shot. It's pretty simple. We've got about three million to go. But first shot's done. We love it. It's great. Go over to the client, and go do you like this? Do you think it's amazing? Tom thinks it's amazing. Client goes, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, can I just see it from this angle? We're essentially shooting somebody who's just smoking a cigarette, right? And Tom's just got mm-hmm. one particular angle. He's covered all the angles, but he's just showing one of them with us. And the client goes, yeah, I'd l- I love it. But can I just see it from this angle as well? And so we go back to Tom and go, Tom, client loves it. Uh, but he just, we know you've got it, but he just wants to see it just to sort of reassure himself. And Tom goes, no, shit, I'm not doing it. And, uh, we go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. you've got it covered. Right. So it's fine. He goes, you're not getting it. He goes, even if I've got it covered, you're not getting it because it's shit. So like, okay, fine. So we go over to the client and the client go, look, um, Tom's done that angle. We've got to trust him. It's not as good. And the client goes, yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate he's done it, but I need to see it. And we're going yeah but if, if you know if you trust him it doesn't matter so we're trying to sort of keep the client away from tom We <laughs> you know tom's like this like you know he's like a he's like a firework that can just go off right yeah. so anyway we go back to tom and go look dude like we just need to move on to the next shoot and what you've done is great but can he just see it just so we can keep him happy and quiet you know like we would normally do right this is like a normal thing and this wouldn't even be a conversation the client would have seen it by now and Tom just goes, I'm not doing it. He goes, I'm just not doing it. And we're moving on to the next shot. So they start setting up for the next shot. So the client, we, we just go, okay, fuck it, whatever. Like the client can just, you know, whatever. <laughs> so we, yeah. we just sort of ignore it. And the client comes over to us goes, why is he going to the next shot? Why are they setting up for the next shot without me seeing what I asked for? And then the producer's like, look, you know, we've got a lot to get through you've got it covered. Let's make these comments in the edit. We've got it covered. We don't have the time. And he goes, no, he goes, I want it done. I, and then the client starts getting really angry and he starts oh going, oh, I want this done, I want this done. And then he starts shouting. And So if you can imagine like maybe like 30 feet away, Tom's there and the client's now stood up and he's walking towards uh, Tom and we're getting in the way going, look, if, if you go over there angry, It's just going to explode, right? Like you've got it covered. Don't worry about it. I promise you, you'll be happy with whatever you've got. And then he starts shouting at Tom going, this is my shoot. I'm paying for the shoot. This is the first shot of the day and I'm not happy and you're not listening to me. And he starts going absolutely crazy, right? So then Tom hears the client's shouting, right? So then Tom, he, he starts walking up to him and they start squaring up to each other and I'm like looking at my writer and looking at the producer and I'm like, what's going on here? And then he starts shouting at each other and he's like, this is my shoot, this is my shoot. He go, I, I, I demand that you do what I want, you know, <laughs> what, what, what you want me to do. And then Tom goes, right, you and me outside now. And then all, all of Tom's team and us were like getting in the middle and we're like going, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? What's going on here? And then Tom just goes, everyone get out of the way. So he basically you know, he, he, he doesn't touch the client, but he squares up to him. And the client is considerably bigger than him, but he squares up to him and he goes, If you want to have this conversation man to man, let's do this outside right now. And the client starts absolutely crapping themselves. Right. But now he's got himself <laughs> into a situation where if he backs down, he looks really weak and he's like, I'm not going to touch you. I'm not going to touch you, but we need to have a conversation right now. He's like, All right, then. So then they go outside and he was like, if anyone comes outside, I'm I'm walking out and you're not, you're not having a shoot. So everyone's like, okay. <laughs> so everyone, everyone's just, you know, inside those, they walk outside. They sort of, you know, we can't see him. They sort of turn a corner. They're there for about 20 minutes. Both come back in. Client's like, yeah, it's cool. Let's move on to the next piece of work or oh, the next shot. Every shot for the next four days was incredible. Tom would go, I'm happy. Creators come over. Do you like it? Yes, Tom, it's brilliant. Get the client over. Client, do you like it? Brilliant, Tom. You're amazing, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Well done, Tom. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. And, and at lunchtime, I went up to Tom and I was like, what did you do? <laughs> like, what, what, like, what did you say to him? And he was like, I just told him. I, I I'm I'm the best I'm, I'm I'm like literally the best person in the UK at, at at what I do, and he was like I don't need him telling me how to do my job, and if he did want to tell me how to do my job, I'm walking off the set, and you don't have a shoot. And he was like, that's what I used to do at A and V. That's how I got all my work out. And he said, the he goes, I'm always prepared to walk away from every situation. And he said, once you get around the table and you come to the end, he goes. Whether you're encountering account teams or you're encountering your creative directors or your ECDs or whoever it is, he goes, I promise you, none of them will ever walk away because they've got bills to pay. They've got mouths to feed. And so in the end, I don't care. (laughs) So he said, I just care about the work and I care about the end product and I'm prepared to walk away at any point that's going to be compromised. And that's what he did. So that was a really big lesson for me. That was like my third shoot in my career. But I could bore you to death with all the things that I love. But I,
1: I just think that's that's just amazing, you know, because this is obviously the creative war room. And I just think that there was a battle right there, all right? It was a battle of a, a battle of wills, you know, obviously the client spending their money. And you can see it from their kind of point of view where they, you know, they have the cash, they their us on the line. Um, they've got to get this whole thing right. And then you know you've got Tom on the other hand, a purist who wants to get things done. He knows he's good at his job. He's yeah. fucking great at his job, and he stands his ground. You know, and I just think, and and, and it was all good. It, it it happened. You got a great lesson out of it. I just I just wondered like, is that? Ha- I just don't can't see that happening today. Can you? I mean, I just I don't know if there's anybody like that today that does that type of thing.
0: Well, anyone who's ever worked with me in health will tell you that's kind of what I did (laughs) good yeah uh, I mean I don't make I don't work in I don't I don't work in agencies in the traditional way as I used to like you and probably everyone else listening to this so you know it's probably been a few years since I was in an agency you know in a creative department running teams and making work but anyone who knew me post AMV when I first got into Langland was my first healthcare experience. I was like that. I, I'm not. I'm not proud of it. If I'm honest with you, like, look, as I'm a little bit older, I've got kids and stuff, I would probably approach things in a different way. I would. I think my language would be slightly softer and different. But I was exactly the same. I was exactly the same. Um, I know. You know, we're in a world where everyone wants to compromise and everyone does compromise. But just from my own experience, uh, I was that's how I was taught and that's how I was. I didn't know any different, but yeah, yeah. it is a different thing because people are more afraid. And I think that's really, really sad.
1: Was that a skill you learned though, Shahid? Was that a skill you learned from Tom? Was that a skill or was it like inherent because it's hard? Cause I've, I, you know, I mean, I've stood, stood, stood my ground on lots of different things and that's, that's the way you get some great, great work. You, you, you have to sort of push it forward. I found it very difficult to be, kind of nasty, not, not saying nasty, but I found it very difficult to be, you know, um, so blunt that it was like hurtful. I have done that, I must admit. So I'm lying, I'm lying now, I'm lying now, but.
0: Well, well there's a difference between being rude and having self-belief. Yeah. As, as, as an observation that I've made during the pandemic and where I am now, I get approached by a lot, a lot of people just, you know, whether it be on LinkedIn or for whatever. And I think there is, you know, look, 95% of what we do is all about confidence, I believe, and self-belief. And I think during the pandemic and during wh- where we are now, a lot of confidence is being knocked out of people. I think working from mm. home has really exacerbated that and, and your self-belief. Uh, there's probably been a lack of uh, training and development in that space. I think. I think also the fact that a lot of agencies aren't really creatively led anymore unless mm. you know the odd agency or an independent so you independent, when you've got finance yeah. you know you've got the financial people running the show decisions are made purely on fear it's like well if this happens and we can't pay for this and you know so so fear run is running rampant at the moment i think um and confidence but look if if, if creative people know that they're good i think that's part of the thing as well right a lot of people don't think they're very good and people do get intimidated by presenting their own ideas for the first time and people do get intimidated when they're having to to pitch or they're having to share their ideas to even their own colleagues and i think that it and that sort of fear spreads and it breeds i think that's something that i've maybe been blessed with, but I think also something that I've, I've had to develop is survival, you know, like my background of coming from the hotel to being in boarding school, I, yeah. I, I, I had, it was sink or swim time because I, I knew that if I hadn't gotten out of there, I was just going to end up in a job that I was going to be very unhappy doing. I didn't want to end up doing a catering job or hotel job or working like my parents are working, like a proper job, like really hard and nonstop. I think also maybe education has got a lot to do with it. You know, I've got two little kids at school and you're sort of looking at the education system of how people are being judged and you're like, that's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? I don't know what I can't remember what your question was, but yes, there's a lot of fear around, I think. Oh, I, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. It
1: was, it was just around that battle and I, and I guess, I guess, you know, and and learning to stand up for yourself. Um, and I think, you know, now, I mean, as a as question is, is now like, obviously you, you were at um amv um you learned you learned through some real tough nuts you learned through some of the real best and then suddenly you're you're in a you're in a you're in a health age I mean obviously you had some serious
0: battles there I mean w- w- were there I didn't, I didn't have too many battles if I'm honest with you because everyone just got out of my way <laughs> Here, watch out he's coming yeah yeah yeah. basically but I mean so amv right just to sort of because I think that's where everything about me comes from really I mean that was that was like the holy ground that was like mecca for creative yeah. I mean what was interesting about that place and that time was okay I was about 20 20 years old I think 2021 something like that got a placement into the into the biggest agency back then and the most awarded agency and when you were in there like literally the vibe every essence of that place felt like anything was possible. Like you could do anything. You know, my boss, was mm. Peter Suter he was David Abbott's prodigy. You know, next wow. door to him was Ron Brown, David Abbott's own art director, right? You could yeah, go into yeah. his office, chat to him, tell you about what David Abbott did or whatever it happened to be. You know, next door to him was Nick Worthington and Paul Brazier. Nick, Wor- all the mm. names that I'm now dropping, please, if you, don't know who I'm talking about go check them out Nick Worthington the Levi's ad you know the one where the guy goes into the lawn yeah. and undresses that's brilliant it. he did yeah he is yeah. absolutely amazing Paul Brazier one of the greatest thinkers in in the world like he taught me so many so many many amazing things Nigel Roberts was there with Paul Belford you know argue at the time the world's most awarded uh print team I mean Nigel Roberts yeah. I would argue is probably the best copywriter in the world today. I would say Paul Belford is easily the, the greatest, one of the greatest art directs of all time. Yeah, you know, Richard brilliant. Curtis, you know, the, the chap who wrote Love Actually at um, Notting Hill, he would be walking in and out of the agency. You know, they they created Make Poverty History. I mean, you're just around like all these incredible, incredible people. And it was so tough. Like, I can't tell you how difficult it was. Like, because when you're a junior team, you get all the retail, all the crap no one wants to do, right? So inundated with like, oh, we've got 50% off wines today at Sainsbury's and we've got some ads going out, you know, next week, whatever. So in today's world, you know, 50% of wines at Sainsbury's would literally be, we've got an archive of shots of bottles of wine, whack on a 50%, design it, artwork it, bang it out. Not an a and I was like, we would, I, I'm not even joking. It would take us about 50 to 60 ads to get one of those things out. And, and and it was all at such a quality because it was like, well, it's not just writing 50% off wines, whatever. I had to have some, it had to have an idea. Oh, yeah. It had to be well yeah. constructed. You had to have a properly written headline and then we would actually then you know, had to construct the, what the shot would look like. We then have to go and shoot it. So even like the smallest detail of like, you know, so again, like in our world, that would might be, you know, rolling out a banner ad on some farmer website or whatever. Just something that would normally seen as something is just to just bang it out the door. But at yeah. it's like, oh, oh, my God, like 50 to 60. I mean, if we got an ad approved with like the 25th idea of a small space ad, that was a result but it was, um, it was just, incredible. honestly, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm harking like I'm an old man. And I guess I am. But people just cared. <laughs> That's okay. People cared yeah. about everything. The details mattered, right? It was all about, you know, people talked about anomalies. It was like the, all these little anomalies make something great. Sort of go back to Guinness Surfer. Guinness Surfer went through a million rounds of research and research told the agency to take the horses out. And and you're just there going, well, they had to fight for that to go back in there, but they only fought for it because everyone cared. Even they used to have this thing about, you know, even when you walk into a meeting room, making sure that the chairs are all correct and making sure that they're not just sort of like about and looking really messy and untidy. Like it was all about the details and it was all about looking yeah. after people. Even selling, actually. Like I think, yes, fine, you can fight, right? And you can be the most, you know, difficult person and all those sorts of things. But one of the things that AMV taught me, anyway, was how to sell work. And I think that that is um, that's a maybe really underutilized skill set because it's not a natural thing for people to go, okay, I'm go- I've got this great idea now, I'm going to go and sell it like I'm on QVC or anything like that. But one of the principles that they had, well, I was taught anyway um, back then, was you know that you can sell work if you've sold your idea before you've shown it. And that was something that I took into health as well because it wasn't just me about me saying, right, this is what we're doing. And, you know, it's a rhetorical <laughs> question. I'm not asking for anyone's opinion. This is just what we're doing. But I, I, I knew how to sell. And I think that combination really helped me. So if anyone is struggling out there and they're constantly having to compromise and they're having to just, dilute all their ideas go back to basics go back to why you're special go back to why you're so good remember why you got into this industry like it's a short it's a short career for all of us right and you're only in this you're only in this industry for uh, 20 years 30 years if you're lucky and you've got to make it count right no no one no one goes to bed thinking oh well that was a great meeting you go to bed happy knowing that you've done something that no one else could have done and doing doing work that's going to make a difference to the next person in the industry that goes oh my god look at what they've done we need to do something better than that or we need to do something similar or we can take this to our client and you know do something in a, in a better way we're all advocates for this industry we're, we're all responsible for the work that comes out of it so I'm I'm going to be sort of a little bit counter to your last chat which I think was with Ryan who I'm a massive fan with but stop compromising. <laughs> I'd say stand firm you're you're great because you know what you're doing right and if somebody's willing to trust you then 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 do it and I think yeah I don't know what I'm saying anymore I'm really tired but um
1: No no yeah. I, I I agree and, and and do you know what I've picked up from from that and, and and I've just I've my old agency and agency before that um, in the health sort of space. And there was two words that you, you, you use and, and particularly on the Sainsbury's thing. You know, It's, it's just, it's not just, you know, it's not just a ad. And I, I think that the words that always I used, to, used to piss me off really badly and get me cranky was, you know, they said, oh, it's just a, this, or it's just a, that. And I said, it's never just anything this is this has to mean something so you know i feel i feel um and i don't want to um bag out um any agencies or 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 the health communications area but we are we are so bound to those those oh it's just this or it's just we're so easy to to bend and 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 break and i would really admire people especially you now talking that that will never Never bend, never never break, but have a good answer for something. So when you were in Langland, you know, and and working in the health space, and then moving into sort of the publicist sort of world, was there? What, did you find that? Did you find that like it's Oh, it's uh, but Shahid, it's just a it's just a banner, or, or it's just a detail. Eh? don't worry about it. It's just a. You no, know, did you find that?
0: No, I've got to say I didn't find much resistance at Langland for anything like that. Um, it was it was pretty I've got to say maybe I've got this all completely wrong but I felt it was pretty easy back then because it was more sort of local clients less global and I think if you're working with local clients certainly from cultural perspective like anyone working in the UK if you're working with a UK client you're gonna I don't know it's just easier I guess Uh, I guess once you start working with different markets and different you know more people more problems right so i guess that kind of came more in the publicist phase where that was sort of more bigger global work uh but yeah at the same time like we're very holistic i i'll be honest with you like i i (laughs) i didn't really care too much for detail aids i i was never really a big believer in the key visual being the campaign i just had a completely different outlook on that it was like we'll give you an idea we'll give you a a reason of why you exist in the world and then we'll express that in different ways if you want to spend 90 percent of your budget on a key visual on a detail aid great (laughs) knock yourself out but they're going to be so many different more interesting expressions that won't have as many eyes looking at it and that's where we focused our energies so yeah I think it, 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 again, I'll just go back to focus. Its just about focusing on the priorities. I'd never compromised on the opportunities that presented us in terms of doing some, some real damage on the award circuit or, or work that was really going to fundamentally be super creative or, or change some, somebody's perception about something, but it never, it never revolved around the key visual on a detail aid. So I think that was a key difference from how maybe I I can sort of look back with slightly rose tinted glasses because even though people kept saying you know we want what's the campaign and it's like I've I've just given you the campaign story so now we're just going to express it so I never saw the yeah. I never saw the key visual as the campaign frankly no one's going to win an award with it it's going to get it's got about 16,000 people all messing around with it. It goes through months of ridiculous market research that fundamentally doesn't really mean too much, right? From that perspective, that's probably why life wasn't so much of a... It was a battle, but not in the, not so much of a battle, I guess.
1: So that was the first part of my conversation with Shahid Pira. I really hope you enjoyed it. Keep your eyes peeled for part two. And keep on fighting the good fight, guys.